Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. First and foremost, an analyst's job is to understand what is happening on their particular account, the subject matter that they follow. The job really is communicating to policymakers what is happening in an account, what it means to the United States, why it matters. The link between Iraq and al-Qaeda after 9-11, you were the team chief. The question at the time was, did Iraq, did Saddam have a role in supporting al-Qaeda or conducting the 9-11 attacks. The difficulty was, though, that there's really poor reporting. We just didn't have the intelligence collection that we needed to provide kind of answers with certainty that we needed to. We concluded that there had been some contacts, but there hadn't been a relationship, that there was no direction of the 9-11 attacks by the Saddam Hussein regime. So in retrospect, we nailed this one. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence did a review of pre-war intelligence. And as an intelligence officer, it's the ultimate report card. They said throughout all of our judgments that it was reasonable, objective, and balanced. And I think in that horrible situation, with all of the other things that happened that were very difficult, it was a bright spot. The job we used to have as analysts back in you know early 90s was actually a lot easier because you could put eyes on all of the data. I think one of the biggest challenges that the intelligence community faces now, has for a few years and will continue to face in the future, is making sure that we're capturing this data that's available, not for free, but for darn close, so that it, we get what insight we can without having to send someone into harm's way. Kristen Wood served as an analyst at CIA for 20 years. During her career, among many assignments, Kristen served as a leader of the Innovation and Technology Group at the Open Source Center at the CIA. She was the daily intelligence briefer for the vice president and was the first analyst ever selected to help found and lead a new regional division in the Directorate of Operations. Kristen and I sat down recently to discuss her career and life as a CIA analyst. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Kristen, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Michael, it's great to be here. Thanks. So you did many things in your career, 
at CIA. But I want to focus on three of them. I want to talk about what it's like to be an analyst. We've had a lot of CIA operations officers on the show, not a lot of analysts. We've never really had a conversation about what's it like to be an analyst every day. So I want to do that. I want to talk about what it's like to be a daily briefer for senior policymakers, which you did. And I want to talk about the growing importance of open source information to the intelligence community, because that's something you did at the end of your career as well. And I know it's something you feel strongly about. So that's what I want to do, if that's okay with you. I'd love to. So let's start with briefing, which is where we first met. I was the briefer for President Bush, and you were the briefer for the vice president's chief of staff and national security advisor, Scooter Libby, and for the vice president himself from time to time. Did you enjoy being a briefer? I loved the job. I think as as you found, it is the opportunity to take the wisdom of the intelligence community and bring it to national security problems and dilemmas that administrations are facing. And so it's an incredible privilege uh, and responsibility, but uh, very much feeling like you have this tremendous engine behind you and your job is to bring it to the nation's problems. So describe the daily routine. So I think it depends on the specific briefer in terms of how much lead time they need, but generally the briefings take place about 7 a.m. And depending on the amount of material you need to go through, you backtrack your arrival. So prior to 9-11, I think most of us would get in one or two in the morning and start reading the material that the operations center had collected overnight and the president's daily brief, the book. What was in the book, reading all the background material. It had been prepared the night before specifically for the president. Exactly. And so making sure that we understood what was in the book, we were lucky enough to have analysts come in and explain the products. And then the specific tailoring that takes place to each uh, senior policy official. So the book was designed for the president, but the vice president or maybe secretary of defense might look at it a little bit differently. So making sure that there's additional information to support their particular missions was a really important part of it as well. And then going down to, and you know, in my case, usually the White House, to go give the briefing and collect their questions afterwards. How did the briefing, how did the briefing work? So it depended upon where we were. If we were in Washington, D.C., generally it was at the White House or the old executive office building, and we'd go in and sit down one-on-one with senior policymakers. So in the case of uh, Mr. Libby, it would be maybe 30 minutes. And you'd go through the book. And then they would have a lot of particular interests in other things. So we used to call it, there's the book and then behind the fold. So the other things that policy things that or national security issues that they really cared about, we had the opportunity to give them something more tailored to their interests. And so that really was a and that conversation. Was both, that was both other pieces of analysis that were done as well as raw intelligence information? Raw intelligence information and sometimes open source information as well. So it really kind of depended on what was going on issues of the day. We would come back then to report to the building what was what was said, what questions were um, that came up as a result of the piece, what 
policymakers thought in terms of how relevant it was, any feedback we could provide to the authors to give them a sense of how much they kind of really hit the mark with the product. And that's not they liked it, they don't like it. That's It's really useful. And I think that was for analysts always the goal, right, is to be as useful as possible for the national security decision makers. After 9-11, that actually changed quite a lot because, as you remember, we all had to get in much earlier because the stack of things to go through that was collected overnight went from maybe a a four or five inch stack to a foot high stack. And that also brought with it the responsibilities of a much higher magnitude, right? The world had changed and we were under attack. And so I think all of us in at CIA and the intelligence community and then us as briefers felt the responsibility even more so every day to make sure we put the right information in front of our our policymakers so that they could make decisions in time to keep us safe. So do you have a best briefer story? Oh, gosh. So one in particular that stands out, uh, as you know, Vice President Cheney was at the undisclosed location for quite a long time after um, 9-11. And uh, the briefings took a lot longer when he was traveling. So, for example, going from 30 minutes to sometimes two and three hours. And with the weight of what had happened to the nation in as a central piece of that, it was an incredibly demanding and frankly exhausting experience. So I came out of the briefing uh, went into the driveway, and we're lucky enough to have a driver to take to take us to and from places. Not because of us, but because of the materials we're carrying. And we started to drive away. And I'm chatting with him, and I all of a sudden see him in the rearview mirror. Which is vice president of the United States. No, this is my driver. This is your driver. Looking in the rearview mirror, his eyes bulge out. And he is clearly panicked. And I turn around to see the vice president of the United States of America... His photographer, his doctor, his chief of staff, and his security people running after my car. And the driver puts on the brakes, and I leap out of the car. And I'm thinking I'm fired. <laughs> I've said the wrong thing. I forgot something important. I did, I did something so colossally wrong that I'm going to get fired before I even get back. So he says, as he pauses, taking some breaths, This is a man with a heart condition. Yes, that's why the doctor was running too. Um, He says, Kristen, so-and-so promised me that today you would bring me this document. I need to make some decisions on it today, and it's not here. And I said, you have more than made your point. I will get that for you. And so why that sticks out to me is... When we have a commitment to deliver, people notice. And sometimes decisions must be made in a timeline that doesn't fit with having the data ready. Mm-hmm. He did get the document later in the day, by the way. Yeah, I bet. So, Kristen, because history matters, I want to ask you a couple of questions about Vice President Cheney and Mr. Libby. You briefed two people who history sees as having politicized or at least having tried to politicize intelligence in a briefing context 
Did you ever see them try to skew an analytic line? Was that your experience with them? So I guess I approached this question a little bit differently than than you've asked it. First and foremost, Vice President Cheney was a politician. And they get to have political views. And he had a very strong political optic on what he thought was happening and who was responsible for what was happening after 9-11. And I think uh, so did Mr. Libby. They tried very hard to push to say, isn't this true? Uh, They were very aggressive and assertive, I think, in saying, is the world this way? And they got to be. Our job as intelligence analysts is, you know, it's trite, but it's to speak truth to power. Uh, They pushed very hard because they believed they had their worldview. And I actually thought it was a privilege to be on the other side of that saying, this really matters. We're making colossal choices about where are we going to go to war with another country? Why? Was there a role that another country played in the 9-11 attacks. I didn't find anything inappropriate about it. Uh, I thought it was our job to be very certain about what we told them in terms of this is what we know, this is what the data says, this is our confidence in the data, and they had to go and make a decision based on that. So did they want it to be a certain way? Sometimes I felt that. But that wasn't really our job and our responsibility. Did you ever see us skew analysis to please them? No, yeah. absolutely not. Neither did I. Neither did I. Okay, being an analyst, what's the job? What's an analyst supposed to do? This is for nobody who's ever been in our building and done this. So kind of the basics. Okay. So I think... First and foremost, an analyst's job is to understand what is happening in, on their particular account, whatever, what the subject matter that they follow. So as a new officer, there's a huge uh, growth curve, even if someone's gotten a PhD in a subject, in understanding from a classified perspective what additional information is brought to bear on the topic that they understand so well from academic schooling. The other piece of it is the rigor with which we need to think about and write about and brief about the topics that we're covering. And as a student, there's the responsibility to do that, but the consequences are so different when we're an intelligence officer telling leaders who may make decisions based on this, this data. So I think the agency does an excellent job from the Sherman Kent School of teaching analysts how to think about their job, how to perform on the job. And then now with the advanced analyst program, even experienced analysts get additional opportunities to further hone their skills. So the job really is communicating to policymakers what is what is happening in an account, why it matters, what it means to the United States, why it matters. And why it's happening, why it is happening, and where it might be going from here. Right. What factors right. determine Absolutely. where it goes from here. And those factors are important because it gives them opportunities to 
perhaps manipulate those factors and affect the outcome. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So did you enjoy being an analyst? Best job ever. I know I said briefly. Better than a briefer. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah but you they're all said the best job ever. Yeah. So I think when being an analyst, from my perspective, was such a privilege. I mean, so as a political science major, how cool is it that I get to write something that the president of the United States gets is going to make a decision about? And being getting a, a product in the president's daily brief was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So, you know, from a, like a geeked out political science perspective, it's it's terrific. Yeah. I think the thing that maybe most people don't know is the rigor with which any piece is both conceived and written and then edited and reviewed by senior officials with maybe more a broader perspective on how what's going on on my account, for example, might tie into something maybe I'm not aware of, either economic issues or, or something else. So I think it's the quality check effort that happens at every step that I think most people wouldn't be aware of how committed we all are to deliver something that is as useful as possible to senior leaders. Yeah. The thrill of it, I remember from being a a junior analyst all the way to being a senior analyst when I wrote a PDB the next morning, seeing it right in print with the words at the bottom for the president's eyes only, right? That's, that was like, wow. Absolutely. Um, So the questions you answer as an analyst, where do they come from? So it depends. Uh, oftentimes, they come from the briefings themselves. A piece will be written for the president, for example, as, as you saw many times, and it will cause the president or the vice president or another leader to say, you know, this makes me think, what are the implications of this on another country, another set of issues? So they're generated by the policymakers themselves. Uh, sometimes they're generated by senior leaders within the agency, to say, look, I can see what's coming here. We need to make sure we have the administration prepared. I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been a little famous for doing that. Yeah, and usually it was due within about eight hours. So, <laughs> um, but And then sometimes they're generated by analysts themselves. We can see what's coming. An analyst who has a lot of experience on a, an account either knows the cycle of the account or they can see that there's a change coming and that there needs to provide warning to the administration about some a new development. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Kristen. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Every week, an extended conversation at a restaurant in our nation's capital with newsmakers like Democratic Senator Mark Warner. What we want to try to do is give the American people the truth. President's attorneys Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani. It is a no collusion, absolutely no obstruction. Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I think we should have a psychologist in the White House. Politics, policy, and a side of pop culture. The Takeout with me, Major Garrett. So, Kristen, what information does an analyst have to do their analysis? And does it come to them from multiple directions or does it come to them in one place? How does that work? So sources of information, probably over the course of a career, that's one of the things that change the most. There's definitely human intelligence collected by people who are providing information to the U.S. government. There's signals intelligence So an opportunity to understand what people are saying. Um, There is open source intelligence. 
And then uh, reporting that we get from media or journals, things like that, that are are in the public sphere. So it comes to analysts, and, and this is where the change is the biggest, right? It used to be probably 20 years ago that you could read everything on your account in the morning and then think about it for the rest of the day. And as social media has exploded, as uh, online media has exploded, and then the just pure amount of intelligence collected otherwise, you end up with way more information than you could possibly read in a course of a day. And so then the job of the analyst is to make sure that it's being sorted in a way that lets them see trends in data as well as read the data itself. So this is, it's a much more complicated, much more uh, sophisticated problem than it had been because I can only read so much. If I can read a thousand reports a day, that would be a miracle. But if I'm receiving a hundred thousand, we really got to have data sets and, and algorithms written so that I can actually make sure I'm seeing really what all of the data says and to what it let the story it tells right. and maybe not read each of them. Right, right, right. We're going to come back and talk more about that. So Kristen, maybe the hardest question of all. So you've got a question that either a policymaker has asked or you've asked yourself as an, as an analyst or somebody in between has asked, and you have all this information that you've collected. How do you come to a judgment? What is that process like? Is it a black box and it's really tough to explain, or is, it, is there some methodology around it? I know that's a tough question. It is a tough I mean, question. You and I have talked about this a lot, actually. And, and I think there's a debate among analysts themselves about what analysis truly is, right? So I think there's, a, there's several layers to it. First is understanding, being current, understanding what's happening in a, a particular situation. But your first thing is, is it the right question, right? And so... Sometimes a policymaker would ask a question that isn't going to get them the answer they're actually looking for. Either it wasn't as nuanced as they might, it wouldn't get them the sophistication of answer they needed. And so first question is, is this the right question? And if not, how do we craft it in such a way that we're going to be providing the information that the policymaker needs? Then the second thing is looking at the data that's available to address the question. How, how am I going to approach this? What are the key parts and pieces that need to be answered to address the question and, and look at the data? So there are all sorts of, if the data is conflicting, if there's something there that maybe big gaps in data, which happens all the time, right? We don't have, we, it's always imperfect knowledge. Then there are analytic tools and techniques that you can use to try to uh, uh, ascertain whether or not you're getting the, the right answer. So one of the things I think as an analyst, a particular experience, a, a big risk is in confirmation bias, right? Where I understand things so well that's happening, what I look at just confirms where I was coming from, right? And so... This is a problem with a rock. Yeah. Um, so the disconfirming in, information can be thrown aside. And sometimes, as you said, with the rock, WMD, that can be the most important thing that's out there. And so I think on key issues, on shifts, we thought it was going this way, it's going now going this way. When it really matters, 
we're, we're applying maybe one or two or three analytic techniques to it to make sure that we're being really, really true to the data and not being caught up in what we believe. So all of those are ways of getting at the information. But the other piece of it is with expertise, with knowledge of these tools and techniques, there's also these flashes of insight that come. And if I'm lucky enough to get one in an issue, that's fantastic because it says, wow, I need to look at it this way. And then you're looking. It comes intuitively. Right. Absolutely intuitively. So and that intuition only can come with experience and insight and all done. If you've done all the groundwork, those flashes can come. They can also lead me astray. Right. So I need to then apply the rigor that we've just discussed to those flashes of insight. But those are the magic moments when you see something that's happening that I, I haven't, rec- I see something that's happening. It has, I haven't recognized before. We know that that's not what the thinking is in terms of the national secure, security community. And that's just a cool moment, really a cool moment. So the review process. So when, when you wrote something, it wasn't just Kristen's view, right? It was the CIA's view. So obviously a lot of people are interested in seeing it, particularly if it's an important issue. So what is the review process? What's it like? How do people feel about it? So are we talking with Michael Morell as a part of it or not? <laughs> you can do it any way you want. Uh, okay. Um, I say that because Michael is rather famous for being a tough reviewer. So I think your point at the beginning is the most important part, which is it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the agency thinks. I mean, what, what the agency says, this is what we're comfortable with. And so the review process is painful, and it should be. I need to be challenged at every layer of management to make sure that my what I am saying on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency really reflects the views of the Central Intelligence Agency. So sometimes that ends up with very testy conversations with peers, um, less testy conversations with managers. But... Everyone is focused on the goal of providing the best product possible to the president. And I think the the sausage making on that can be very difficult, but the result is absolutely worth it. Let's take a real life example here. Okay. And I know this is one you can talk about because a lot of this has been declassified. The link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda after 9-11. You were the team chief responsible for that issue. You took that job, by the way, after working for me as my executive assistant, I remember. So you were the first-line supervisor for the analysts that were looking at that question. Walk us through that from the perspective of being an analyst. So that one, that job, I will never forget the responsibilities I felt as part of that. So the question at the time was, did Iraq, did Saddam have a role in supporting al-Qaeda or conducting the 9-11 attacks? And we looked at it from really three optics. It's you know, control, direction, and then complicity. And our responsibility was to investigate, look at all the data that had ever been collected on Iraq's support for terrorism, and then anything more recent related to Al-Qaeda and make an assessment of, to answer this question. In a very difficult political environment, 
when there was the potential to go to war over the answer. And so the rigor that we've talked about applying to agency analysis writ large was even more ratcheted up and and, at an incredible amount because the answer is so important. And I think the analysts on my team definitely approached it with that kind of a sophistication and understanding. So we were really looking at leadership. Is there a leadership connection? Are there contacts between the two? Is, are they providing training? Have they offered safe haven? And we investigated. The difficulty was, though, that there's really poor reporting. We just didn't have the intelligence collection that we needed to provide kind of answers with certainty that we needed to. But at the time, we concluded that there had been some contacts. There was no relationship back in time. time. Yeah, back in time. There were contacts, but there hadn't been a relationship, that there was no direction of the 9-11 attacks by the Saddam Hussein regime. Um, And that there were these... There was no question that they both saw the U.S. as an adversary, but that we didn't see that that led them to cooperate. Uh, It was a very difficult process. So analytically, we talked about the review process. That one, as it should have been, was very, very, very difficult because we wanted to make sure we were speaking for the whole of the agency. And uh, as terrorism analysts, we looked at things a little bit differently than regional analysts. And the priority really for even the counterterrorism center at that point was Al-Qaeda itself, not, not Iraq. Iraq's support for terrorism, though well-known, though ubiquitous in the Middle East in many ways, hadn't been what caused the 9-11 attacks. And so we were really a peripheral issue for counterterrorism center, but it was a very central issue for the administration some of whom really believed that Saddam Hussein had a role in it. So in retrospect, we nailed this one. We got this right, right? Right. We got, so, the, we got the Iraq WMD wrong, but we got this one right. And people who worked on it should be extraordinarily proud of that. Thank you. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence did a, re- a review of pre-war intelligence. And as an intelligence officer, it's the ultimate report card. You know, how'd you do? And... They said throughout all of our judgments that it was reasonable, objective, and balanced. And I think in that horrible situation, with all of the other things that happened that were very difficult, it was a bright spot. Okay, Kristen, let's switch gears for the last time and talk about your experience in the Open Source Center at CIA. What was your job there? So my job was... um, leading innovation and technology in the Open Source Center. So looking at this dilemma that we discussed a little bit earlier of the massive amounts of data that come in that analysts and officers have to somehow try to understand what it's telling them when you cannot do that on a human scale. And what did you learn? What I learned is that... The job we used to have as analysts back in the you know early 90s was actually a lot easier 
because you could put eyes on all of the data and understand it. And for analysts who are currently on the mission, they're dealing with a much more difficult challenge of this this fire hose of information coming at them and the responsibilities to extract meaning from it at a pace that would serve policymakers and administrations need to make decisions. And so there's a really vital need to continue to look to the private sector for the analytic tools and the data mining capabilities to make sure that we're looking at not only what the data says, but what trends it's talking about, where it's coming from, what does it reflect about, you know, sentiment analysis is one of those things that we've been, it's a holy grail we've been after for years is something's happening in another country. What does the population feel about that? Do they feel strongly enough that there are going to be protests? Do they feel strongly enough that they're going to try to overthrow the government? Or is this something where it's not really a significant development? And chasing that has been difficult. With so much online video, video storage, just from data storage perspective, we all know from our own computers, you, you just can't store all of that even if we have clouds. So it's, and then how do you view tens or hundreds of thousands of hours of video? And so the challenges around capturing the information that come from those sources of information in the open source actually are tremendous. And I think increasingly very important part of what an intelligence analyst needs to not only see but understand uh, in addition to the human human intelligence signals, intelligence is being collected. So you're talking about the challenge of this massive amount of data as a result of the open source revolution, but there's also opportunity here, right? There's opportunity to collect things and see things that you can't see otherwise. So absolutely, I do know that that one of the first indications that the Russians were in Ukraine was from social media, right? Russian soldiers taking pictures of each other. And posting them on social mm-hmm. media. So there's new information to be found, right? And that's another piece of this. Right. No, absolutely. New information, but also it comes with it a different level of credibility. Because if you see a video, for example, of tanks moving into a country and it's ge- geotagged, so you can see where it was happening and you can see that it's going east, it's pretty a pretty solid piece of information. Even more powerful than a human source telling you, right? Right, exactly. So the power of it is amazing. It's also a lot less expensive in terms of both financial resources and risk to human life. I mean, to put someone on the ground right there to witness it be tremendously expensive and risky. But you actually didn't need to leave your desk in some cases where you could see what was happening. So I think one of the biggest challenges that the intelligence community faces now, has for a few years and will continue to face in the future, is making sure that we're capturing this data that's available, not for free, but for darn close, so that we get what insight we can without having to send someone into harm's way. So how long since you were in the Open Source Center? It's been four years. And my sense four years ago that we were pretty far away from where we needed to be with regard to the issue you're talking about, right? Which is harnessing this open source information in a way that improves the agency's performance. Why do you think we were so far away? I know you don't know where we are now and what's been done since you left, but why the gap? 
So, first of all, this is hard. This is really, really hard. And it's new. Uh, Not new. Social media has been around for a bit. But the importance of open source information has changed significantly over the decades. So if you think about it, open source in the 50s and 60s was really newspapers and video broadcasts and and important information to understand context. But it wasn't the the source who was next to a really important senior leader that you could get insight into what that senior leader was thinking, right? So I honestly don't think people took open source quite as seriously as maybe even we should have back then. So fast forward all this time, much of what happens is now in the public, whether that's leaders tweeting or speaking publicly, whether that's the sentiment of a public, social media platforms, so much more happens now. And I think personal perspective is I think that that revolution in data maybe caught us a little bit off guard. Um, Maybe not everybody, maybe there were people talking about it, but it didn't really get the attention it needed in part because there's so many other challenges that the the intelligence community are facing, right? We're trying to make sure there's not another 9-11. We're trying to make sure that Russia and China, we're monitoring Russia and China and, and what's happening there in Iran and North Korea and many, many other areas. And I just think it hadn't gotten the focused attention that it really needed and deserved to be developed, fully developed as the source of information it can be. Going back four years, if, if you had been a queen, right, and, and, and you could do anything you wanted, what would you have done to have sped up the process, to have sped up the closing of that gap? So remember, I'm a CIA officer, first and, was first and foremost. I would probably have changed the mission of the Open Source Center just to support CIA and its mission. And then with a, so right now it supports the whole of the right. intelligence community right. and DOD and lots of others. Right. And that, uh, that broad mission makes it very difficult to mm-hmm. go deep. And so I think bringing it to, it's not that large of an organization to bring it to a single mission where you could dig in deep and support the analysis and, and collection uh, that the, the CIA conducts. I think that's where it could have been much, much more effective and a powerhouse. I really think it's a powerhouse for the future. Kristen, you've been fantastic with your time. I want to ask you one last question. We've had a lot of former senior women from the intelligence community on, and I've asked many of them, you know, what is it like to be a woman in what used to be, not anymore, but what used to be a male-dominated environment. But I want to ask you a different question. You You have two amazing sons, I want to ask you how easy the IC and the agency make it to be a mom um, as an intelligence officer. So, first of all, thank you for the compliments on my sons. They are wonderful human beings. Personally, I don't feel that it was relevant to the senior leaders who I was supporting, whether or not I had kids or elder care issues or a health issue or whatever it was. It's not that people didn't care. It's that, well, we still have to stop the attack that's coming tomorrow. So you need to stay late. Um, The other thing is I think all of us, whether we're parents or not, moms or dads, we just feel this tremendous responsibility to stay, to see it through, to make sure 
that we ask the right question, that we get the information today to the people who need it. And the mission itself makes it very, very difficult to be there for family the way we want to be. It's part of what we sign up for when we join the agency. Um, In the difficult days with a pre-war intelligence on Iraq, and we're trying to decide, are we going to go to war with Iraq because it supported the 9-11 attacks? I needed to be at work. And I would go to work at 6, come home at 7.30. Um, I would put my kids to bed. And then, you know, at the time, you could, not anymore, at the time you could have a secure fax. And I would have my people fax my their papers to me and their products. And I would review them until midnight. And then I would fax them back to the operations center. And my analysts would pick them up in the morning and we'd start again. So all-consuming. And uh, I have to be honest, I still feel some guilt about that today of the times I missed. Um, My kids being in the Washington, D.C. area were aware of the kind of work that we did. Um, They were children of the 9-11 attacks. They were terrified of Osama bin Laden personally because they saw what happened in there at those formative elementary school days where that was really powerful. So I think they are very proud of me um, for working to serve the American people. Um, But it is kind of nice to have more time with them now as they're a little bit older. You could be talking about my kids and and, and my situation as well. Kristen, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. That was Kristen Wood. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.